0: Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. Today's episode starts out with some positivity from our good news segment, as well as our Feats of Strength segment, which includes a really ridiculous bench press performance by Julius Maddox yet again. After that, we've got a research roundup segment where we talk a little bit about how our genetics affect caffeine responses, talked about protein timing and distribution, uh, concurrent training and the interference effect, and much more. After that, we've got a Q&A segment where we talked about how cold exposure affects energy expenditure and body composition. We talked about different fat distribution patterns, what to do with our nutrition during a deload, and Greg shares some tips for avoiding hangovers. Finally, to play us out, we answered a couple of off-topic questions. One was about food preferences, and the other was an absolutely inexcusable personal attack aimed at me. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a very special temporary guest host named Greg Knuckles.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you for joining me. So we are back to doing some normal episodes. Uh, In recent weeks, we've run quite a few interviews and we did some fireside chats, but this is going to be a normal episode, so it's going to be a little longer, generally speaking, and we're going to get into a bunch of very on-topic stuff related to fitness and science and the intersection between them. But uh, just to give a couple notes about what to expect uh, moving forward into the future, Um, we are going, you know, we're back on an every other week schedule for our episodes coming out. So this episode will come out June 4th, then we'll have an episode June 18th, and then we'll have one July 2nd, and then we are going to begin our summer break. And so uh, for much of July and August, I think we are going to be off. And I think we'll come back at some point around like August, September, like drop an episode in. Yeah, we'll, like that. we'll
1: publish something at some point just because uh, the way iTunes podcasts work. If you don't publish anything for longer than six weeks, you stop automatically showing up in people's feeds. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll publish something, but for the most part, we'll be off during that time.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, you'll, you'll hear from us uh, at, at certain points throughout that stretch, but we wanted to take some time off this, uh, this summer to, you know, do other stuff. So we're going to be working on some projects and things like that wanted a good opportunity to get ahead. And those projects, obviously, you'll be hearing about as they are developing and ready to be made public. So starting out, let's uh, let's start with our good news segment. This is a kind of new segment that we started where we just talk about some good news that happened. So, Greg, what do you got this week?
1: Yeah. So I saw something that I don't even come close to having the expertise to fact check. I'm just going to assume it's true. And as as good and at least promising as it sounds, a group of researchers in Kenya and the UK have found a fungal spore that seems to be able to just basically completely stop the malaria parasite. Um, So the most kind of effective way to hem malaria deaths so far has just been making and and selling or donating massive amounts of mosquito nets to areas in in uh just around the world that are that are affected by malaria um but you know that's that's helped decrease malaria deaths to some degree but it's still i think a much bigger problem globally than people realize so Uh, The most recent year for which there is full data is 2018, and over 400,000 people died of malaria in 2018. So it's still like a very major global killer. Um, And this fungal spore, instead of being used as a treatment for humans when they get malaria, it's actually used to stop mosquitoes from getting malaria in the first place. So like the entire life cycle of the malaria parasite requires both mosquitoes and humans, um, and so if you can stop mosquitoes from being able to get and transmit malaria, you can therefore stop humans from contracting malaria. Uh, and this this fungal spore called *Microsporidia* MB um, seems to to be very very promising because it both stops uh, stops the mosquitoes from getting infected with malaria um and also doesn't seem to harm the mosquitoes in any meaningful way like you know you can't just wipe out the mosquitoes cuz that could mess up food chains and ecosystems and all that stuff um so anyway so far it seems like a very very promising effort to you know hopefully eradicate or at minimum drastically drastically cut down on The spread of malaria and hopefully the number of people who die from it.
0: Very cool. Well, I've got one uh, from South Africa, a new story. So apparently, I mean, you know, I I love a good positive story about pups. Love dogs. Always. Um, And yeah, so in South Africa, apparently they've been using dogs, very professional dogs, to help uh, reduce poaching it's kind of part of their anti-poaching effort and so I saw this story uh, I guess they're they're mostly using beagles and bloodhounds but but potentially some other breeds mixed in there and I don't really know how they do it But apparently these dogs have been a very valuable part of the anti-poaching effort in South Africa. So um, it looks like uh, since 2018, when they started doing this with this group of dogs, um, they attribute uh, 45 saved rhinos to the efforts of this group of dogs. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it looks like, um, according to National Geographic, it's helped them also catch Uh, 145 poachers and confiscate 53 guns. So little pups out there protecting the environment and uh, leading the charge against poaching. Dude, that's sweet. Very cool stuff. All right. So let's move on to some lifting related stuff. Uh, Classic segment. Everybody loves it. Feats of strength. What do you got this week?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, people for the most part haven't been competing. So these are... All gym lifts except for one, uh, and it is slightly controversial whether it's a gym lift or competition lift, and I don't give a shit either way. So anyway, let's get right into it. i um, going to start with someone we've talked about on Feats of Strength before. Actually, I think we've talked about all of these people. Um, newsflash, strong people tend to stay strong and in fact sometimes get stronger. Uh, so first person is Muhammad Raisi. Um, he is an Iranian junior lifter we've talked about before. Absolutely incredible squatter. Um, we talked about him maybe like a month before he broke the all-time world record for the squat in his weight class. So he competes at 82.5 kilos or 181. And he recently posted a gym lift squatting 385 kilos which is 849 pounds at a body weight of 81 kilos or 179 pounds which like that's absolutely wild he already holds the record in the weight class like I mentioned at 360 kilos or 793 pounds so he's put more than 50 pounds on his squat in in the past like three months um he's only 23 years old and around this time last year, his best squat in a meet was 330 kilos or 727 pounds. And that seems like it was a max because he took 340 or 749 at the same meet um, and he failed that. So he's put more than 100 pounds on his squat in the past year and is currently, you know, way ahead of everyone else in that weight class, still only 23 years old. Sky's the limit for him. Um, There is talk that, like, his goal is to squat five times body weight. That has only ever been done once, I'm pretty sure, by uh, Stanazic, who, if you don't know about him, he was a little person who competed in the lighter weight classes and (laughs) was just way better than everyone in the squat. Um, Part of that owing to like how he was built and the fact that he had exceptionally short legs, which gave him super, super favorable leverages. And no one else I'm pretty sure has ever squatted five times body weight raw. Um, And one would expect just the way strength to weight ratios work. One would expect that like the next person who did it would compete at like 60 kilos, um, not in the 82 and a half or 181 class. So the fact that he's even within like spitting range of five times body weight is wild, Uh, absolutely in a class of his own right now when it comes to squatters in that weight class and still improving rapidly. Next is Amanda Lawrence. Uh, If you know who Amanda Lawrence is, it will come as no surprise to you that this is also a squat feat of strength. Um, She already has the record in her weight class, so the 84 kilo female class in IPF and its affiliates. Uh, Her record is 250 and a half kilos or shade over uh, 550 pounds. And that's already 20 and a half kilos ahead of second place. Um, So the number two squatter in that weight class, I believe, is Daniela Mello, who squatted 230 kilos. So she Amanda already has a stranglehold on the squat record in that class. And she squatted nine and a half kilos over it in the gym. Looked like she maybe had a little bit more in the tank. Um, very, very strong young woman and continuing to get stronger and just make the squat record, uh, fully solidified, um, next. So <laughs> feats of strength has, has almost kind of become like the Julius Maddox watch. Um, cause virtually anytime he does something crazy, we talk about it. He recently benched 705 pounds for four reps, uh, in a gym lift that's 320 kilos for non-Americans. Uh, that is, it's ludicrous. Like there's no, there's no other way to talk about it. Um, exactly six people have ever benched 700 or more in a meet. Um, and like maybe only one other One other bencher has maybe been able to do 700 plus for multiple reps. The fact that he's doing it for four is wild. Um, He's aiming to bench 800 in a meet on June 20th. I'm kind of surprised that that meet's still scheduled, but, you know, whatever. We'll see if it goes down or not. Obviously, Julius Maddox still already has the record in that weight class at 770 pounds or a shade under 350 kilos, um, aiming to become the first 800 raw bencher. The way his training's going, it would not shock me in the least if he accomplished it. Um, moving on. So, uh, n- you know, got to give the deadlift some love in these last two feats of strength. Kaler Woolum, uh recently deadlifted 909 conventional, which is 412 kilos, um, that's, <laughs> it, so it's kind of funny. So Kaylor Wollum had the record in the hundred kilo untested weight class in the deadlift at 432 and a half kilos. Um, during the time when we weren't doing normal episodes, I believe Christoph Weirbicki, um, beat his record by, I think like a kilo. Um, so I don't know if we talked about that during Feats of Strength, but Kayler Wollum is was the best deadlifter in that class. Now the second best deadlifter in that class, but super, super elite. Um, But (laughs) Kayler Wollum and Christoph Weirbicki are so far ahead of everyone else in that class that if Kaylor Wollum pulled conventional, even though it's almost 50 pounds under his sumo deadlift, he would still be the second best deadlifter in that class, Um, which is kind of wild. Like Those two guys are just in a class of their own when it comes to deadlifters at approximately 100 kilos or 220 pounds and then the final feat of strength which i figure everyone expected us to talk about is half thor bjornsson he deadlifted 501 kilos which is what 1103 1104 pounds um were you watching that live Trex, or did you just watch the replay
0: i only saw the replay
1: so i was watching it live i think i was probably more nervous than he was um, cause I don't know. He just, he just seems like a chill dude. Uh, and I know that this is a news segment. We're telling you what's going on in the world. I don't usually inject opinion, but like Eddie Hall kind of annoys me. <laughs> and so <laughs> I wanted, well, uh, I wanted Thor to break his record. Um, and dude, he, He murdered it. Yeah. There was no doubt. Like he took what? 480 for a second attempt. It was basically a speed rep. There was no doubt that he was going to pull more than 500. Uh, I thought he was going to double it. Like he made it look like a joke. Um, And (laughs) he uh, he kind of trolled Eddie Hall afterwards, like in the interview. Um, So kind of Eddie's whole thing with the 500 deadlift is. He tried to make it sound like it was almost like a a mythical, like mystical thing that happened. Like he couldn't pull anywhere close to that in the gym. Something just came over him on meat day and like his fucking soul left his body. And it happened by like an act of God and it almost killed him to do it. And like Thor just murders 501. He's like, oh, yeah, feels good. Uh, It's nice. Um, So I enjoyed that part of it. And apparently now they're going to fight, which, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't expect either of them to be particularly good, but uh, I'm going to buy that pay-per-view. Like whoever set that up, not a bad idea. It's going to print money.
0: Maybe that should be the new norm in, in strength <laughs> sports. of like if you take somebody's record, like, OK, well, now you're now you're going to have to fight. Yeah, that'd be good. If uh, so, you know, it's like
1: so the way that I played horse growing up in basketball is once you got. Uh, Once you got the E, you had to you had to attempt a half court shot. And like if you made the half court shot, you stayed in. Um, So like me and all of my friends were way better at half court shots than was feasible because like never take that in a game. But whatever. That's how we played horse. If that if that became kind of like the way that you solidify a record that like if someone breaks your record, but you can beat them in a fight, you hang on to it. That would be cool. I wouldn't be mad about it.
0: Yeah. And like you said, Thor's super chill. Um, Like we got the opportunity to uh, to meet him Mm -hmm. and like very, very pleasant, very nice guy. So like I I have I don't really follow uh, like this that -hmm. closely. Like uh, so I don't have an opinion about Eddie Hall, aside from just what I've heard you talk about with with Thor and Eddie. But uh, but no, like Thor is a super nice, super cool guy. So it was it was pretty cool to see him do this. And yeah, like you said, after the after the repetition, he did not appear to be phased in the slightest. Yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah.
1: All right. Uh, So moving on to the next segment, Research Roundup. It's been a hot minute. There's been a lot of science that's been published. uh, And I think you're going to you're going to lead this one off, right?
0: Yes, uh, science continues to march forward, and we are here to update you. And by the way, um, this has been a, a segment that people seem to like on the podcast, the Research Roundup. It's kind of short, condensed reviews, like brief updates about recent research. If you want more content like this, if you get on the Stronger by Science email list, we try to periodically send out emails that are very similar, just kind of brief updates of the research. So if you head over to the website, how do they get on the on the email list? Just go to the website and
1: I mean, we can uh, we can just put a link in the show notes.
0: Cool. We'll do that. But yeah, so if you like this stuff and you want more of it, get on the email list and you'll receive it periodically.
1: If you're like religiously opposed to checking show notes for some reason, I believe the, the URL to sign up is stronger slash train hyphen smarter.
0: Very cool. Okay, so I'm going to start out with a little update on caffeine and the caffeine literature. it, It just always seems to be evolving these days. So, you know, I remember, man, it was a few years ago, I was helping out with a textbook chapter about caffeine and I drew the short straw and I was supposed to talk about genetics and caffeine metabolism. And at that time, and it was obviously supposed to relate to performance. At that time, um, you know, like I said, it was a few years ago, we were just starting to see like the initial studies saying, yeah, we're going to start look looking into these different genetic factors and caffeine responses. But there was like literally, I think, two studies out at the time that the, the number of studies looking at how genetics affect caffeine responses is starting to grow and it's going to continue to grow, and, and that's not just for the performance stuff. It, it pertains to, uh, you know, the the long term cardiac effects or cardiovascular effects of caffeine intake. We're going to start to see this all over the place because it's getting easier and more accessible to do some very quick uh, genotype testing for these types of studies. So in any case, the first couple studies looking at caffeine and and various performance responses started trickling out over the last couple years. And the two genes that people are most interested in, uh, one is the CYP1A2 gene. And that is responsible for like 95% of caffeine metabolism. So very much dictates the rate at which you metabolize caffeine in terms of in terms of the genes responsible, obviously there are a number of other factors that can influence that. But it
1: it codes for the rate limiting enzyme, right?
0: Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so the CYP1A2 gene, the initial results we were getting from some of these first studies were, were indicating that the fast genotype, the AA genotype, um, was thought to be more favorable for performance uh, effects of caffeine. The slower genotypes, the AC or the CC genotype, didn't seem to be quite as favorable in terms of getting a performance boost from caffeine. That was largely from studies, it might actually be exclusively from studies looking at uh, aerobic performance or endurance type tasks. Uh, The other gene that gets looked at a lot is the ADORA2A gene. And this codes for the the A2A adenosine receptor which is one of the key adenosine receptors that caffeine can bind to and actually exert some of the effects related to performance so there's the the gene that's most closely associated with metabolism but also this gene that's associated with the actual one of the actual receptors that caffeine can bind to Um, And so what they were seeing from some of these initial studies was that people with the CT or the CC genotypes were were kind of thought to be non-responders or or have a, a much smaller or much less favorable response to the ergogenic effects of caffeine. And so... You know, we had these genotypes identified. Very easy to test for. Those initial results were quite intuitive. Again, largely from endurance-based activities, and so that was a very appealing thing to run with. And and just kind of say, "Okay, we got it figured out. We got good genotypes and bad genotypes. Hope you're the good one. If you're like me, don't get tested because you're going to take caffeine anyway." Right? (laughs) When we we talked about that on on the show, because because these have tied into. uh, There's a study saying, "Hey, you better be you know that." fast genotype for cyp1a2 if if you want to have a bunch of caffeine and have you know good long-term cardiovascular outcomes and uh you and i were both like i mean it doesn't it doesn't matter like yeah the the caffeine is here to stay it it is now part of the deal but in any case um gergic and colleagues came out with two different studies in the past couple months the past month or two actually Uh, One of the studies was focused on the CYP1A2 uh, genotype. The other was looking at that ADORA2A. So first things first, the CYP1A2 study, uh, what they did was they they recruited 22 men for the study and they split the groups based on, you know, what their genotype was for CYP1A2. So the, the fast metabolizers or the slow metabolizers. And uh, what they found is that caffeine in this study improved uh, bench press reps to fatigue using 85% of one rep max, uh, improved bench press velocity and power output, improved vertical jump height, and also improved uh, cycling power output. Uh, what was interesting was that the results were pretty similar for both of these groups. And so they they were kind of pushing back on those preliminary studies indicating that we've got, you know, this good genotype, bad genotype for, for performance outcomes. So this particular study casts a little bit of doubt on the idea that you have to be that fast CYP1A2 genotype if you want to get some of these strength and power Uh, benefits from acute caffeine consumption Um, now that doesn't mean the case is closed this is kind of unfortunately we're at that beginning phase of a body of research where you start to see a couple results trickle out and when when a body of literature is just starting to develop and it's like one to one you know shows the effect or doesn't or two to one it's really hard to make sense of that once more studies come out and you start to say okay it's like seven to two and you can then start looking at what factors in those two studies are, are making them be divergent. That's when you can start to really piece things together. But for now... Do you
1: remember in that study if they uh, if they conducted it on habitual caffeine users or people who were naive to the effects of caffeine?
0: You know, I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and double check. I'm actually... Um, both of these studies I plan on really diving into pretty deeply because uh, I'm doing gotcha. a, ca- yeah, um, I'm working on a caffeine related article uh, in a couple weeks here. So uh, I'm not sure uh, about the habitual caffeine status of the sample.
1: So the, the reason I ask is um, what's often used in research are people who either don't use caffeine or they give like an upper threshold. Like if you use more than a hundred milligrams a day, you're excluded. So like people who don't use much, um, and, and my understanding which could be completely wrong is that one of the reasons the cyp1a2 gene would matter in terms of of exercise responses is that since it since it influences whether you metabolize it quickly or slowly um, slow metabolizers basically anytime they have a dose of caffeine it stays in their system for longer and so it's you know, affecting receptors for longer. And one of the things that can happen is they build up a tolerance faster. And so then since they, like for a given level of caffeine intake, since they develop more of a tolerance faster, then if you have people who are, who are habitual caffeine users, the slow metabolizers have what would be like a relatively greater tolerance. And therefore like an acute dose would have a smaller effect. So I'm... I wouldn't be shocked. I have no idea if this is true or not. You know this this literature way better than I do. But like, if that is a potential mechanism at play, I wouldn't be shocked if the CYP1A2 genotype didn't have an effect on performance outcome from caffeine supplementation in caffeine-naive individuals, but if it did have differential impacts in people who were habitual caffeine users.
0: That's something that I definitely want to look into. It's an interesting... Theory regarding habituation i 'm a little bit I would want to look at exactly what those time courses are for caffeine clearance in fast versus hybrid genotypes or heterozygous mm-hmm. versus you know the the very slow genotype. The reason that I would be interested is even if you are a fast metabolizer, the caffeine's still around for a while, yeah, you know what I mean so i 'd be curious to see how much of an impact that really would have on that receptor desensitized, you know, how quickly those become desensitized to the, mm-hmm. the effect of caffeine. Because, you know, if we're talking about a half-life of five and a half hours versus six and a half hours, mm-hmm. I would really, just on the surface value without having seen the literature you're referring to, I'd, I'd be very, at least a little bit skeptical that that little percentage increase in half-life would would do it. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have no idea if that's true or not. I'm just throwing out a possibility. Yeah. Um And, and no, even, it's it's
0: an intriguing idea, though.
1: And and one thing I'll note is like, so even if there's like a relatively small difference in half life, you can still wind up with a with a like more notable difference in area under the curve, because mm-hmm. like. You know, it's it's reasonably small for the first half life. But then like that one hour difference becomes a two hour difference by the second half life becomes a three hour difference for the third half life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, I it, and I do think the difference in caffeine clearance is slightly larger than that, like mm-hmm. a, a little bit more than like five and a half versus six and a half. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really don't know. I'm just I'm just throwing that out as a potential possibility.
0: Yeah. I'm going to dig into that literature and we will report back on it. Cool. So another, uh, like I said, there are two studies here, both from Gergic and colleagues. The second one was looking at the Adora 2A gene. And this one was set up a little bit different. So they didn't, you know, recruit a sample and then split into two groups. They basically restricted their study to people who either had the CT or the CC genotype. So they didn't have two different parallel groups going. This was just a group of people that either were CT or CC. And th- those are both genotypes that are associated with being the quote-unquote bad genotype for, for Adora 2a. Uh, the idea is that people with those two genotypes should be kind of non-responsive to the performance effects of caffeine. And uh, in this one there There was a ton of different outcomes uh, I think they had a total of like twenty five different exercise outcomes because <laughs> you know you look at power on set one power on set two like stuff yeah, like yeah. that so it's, it's they didn 't do like a six hour test of like you know, but but yeah, I think they had twenty five total exercise performance variables. And caffeine improved performance on 21 out of the 25. Oh wow! Which is that's a high number. You're never. I mean, for something like caffeine, you're never going to see like 25 out of 25 across the board, or you mm-hmm. wouldn't expect to reliably. But um, but yeah, compared to placebo in this crossover trial, the caffeine did improve uh 21 of those 25, uh, including bench press reps to fatigue using 85% of one rep max. Uh, including bench press velocity and power, vertical jump height, and cycling power output as well. And so uh, it, it's another one of those things where th- this finding pushes back a little bit uh, against the, the the initial thought that if you have one of those two genotypes for the Adora 2A gene, then you are just not going to get a performance benefit from caffeine supplementation. You look like you have a, a thought on your no, mind.
1: No, so that that's really interesting. And if I'm remembering prior conversations we've had about caffeine, that finding potentially recasts a lot of the literature. Um, I can't remember if we talked about this uh, in a discussion of a mass article or if it was on the podcast or an article for the site. I, I don't remember what what venue we had this conversation in, but I remember a point that I think you made was that a lot of the exercise benefits of caffeine seem to be more related to its effects on adenosine antagonism rather than, like, calcium release or, like, fat oxidation or anything like that. Um, And so if we're seeing that, like, this genotype that affects the adenosine receptor itself doesn't seem to be having an impact, at least on resistance training performance... That would seem to suggest that, like maybe, some of those non adenosine mediated effects of caffeine potentially are larger drivers of the benefits we're seeing from caffeine on resistance training performance.
0: I mean, so one of the tricky things with the mechanisms of caffeine is that many of the other mechanisms that we talk about are Mm -hmm. related to adenosine binding as kind of a secondary effect. So, so I think. A lot of people, when they think of the just straight up adenosine thing, they're thinking, okay, uh, caffeine's effects specifically on like alertness or pain perception. But mm-hmm. but there are some other kind of secondary mechanisms of caffeine that I think a lot of people perceive as being unrelated to adenosine that are actually just kind of downstream effects of the fact that that adenosine binding is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but but no, I mean, what is definitely fascinating about these two studies is they are at least enough to give us a reason to pump the brakes a little bit mm-hmm. and say okay for for a minute there it was seeming that the the genotype conversation was pretty straightforward uh, again based on pretty limited data just a limited number of studies and it, it it does make you start to think okay as we continue to interpret this this literature related to genotyping and caffeine responses we probably, at least for the time being, ought to be viewing all these different types of outcomes individually, right? So not mm-hmm. necessarily assuming that what applies to long-term cardiovascular risk is going to apply to uh, divergent endurance exercise responses. And then in this case, not assuming that divergent endurance exercise responses are going to necessarily apply to non-endurance exercise or, you know, strength and power type outcomes. That's one of the, the lessons to kind of tentatively hold on to as we move forward with this literature. Another lesson is let's let some studies get out, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, before before we say like with all certainty, like, okay, we, we fully understand this because two pilot studies came out, right? So it, it's definitely an area of the research to keep an eye on. And probably what I'm going to do um, because, you know, there there are a lot of details when it comes to caffeine literature and looking into, you know, what does this mean for our interpretation of the mechanistic uh, uh, performance enhancing effect? Like, what is the underlying mechanism and what do these findings mean for uh, caffeine naive people versus caffeine habituated people? There's a lot of details to sort out there. And so what I'll probably end up doing is... At some point in the near future, I'll probably update the stronger by science caffeine article and start to incorporate some of this nuance but uh you know the research roundup is basically the front page headlines of new studies that have come out, so definitely two new studies to keep on your radar that make the caffeine literature even more complicated. We didn't really need it to get more complicated, <laughs> but unfortunately, it did yeah uh, but but yeah it'll it'll definitely keep us busy as more of that research comes out so uh, Greg, you've got a, a study here. Um, what's this one, Michelson and colleagues? What's this one about?
1: Yeah, so the the title of the paper is "Effects of Two Different Recovery Postures During High Intensity Interval Training" by Michelson and colleagues, and this was published back in February. And when I saw it, when I saw it, I think I just read it or, or like skimmed it and it was like, okay, well, no shit. Um, so it it was basically looking at recovery after, uh, like repeated sprint exercise and your, your body posture and how that affects it. So whether you recover faster with your hands on your knees or your hands, like on the back of your head. And I I don't know. I, I feel like I read an article somewhere, maybe like three years ago saying that like, Oh, the thing your coaches told you when you were growing up that like to recover after sprints or like if you're tired in a game, like you need to stand up. You need to have your hands on the back of your head, whatever. That like, that's all bullshit. And like putting your hands on your knees is fine. Um, So like I didn't investigate that claim. That's that's what always felt the best to me. Uh, and apparently everyone, which is why coaches have to drill it into people. They're like, no, take your hands off your knees, put your hands on the back of your head. That'll help you breathe better. Like I, I thought it seemed kind of self-explanatory that hands on your knees helped you like recover a little bit faster. Um, but apparently that research hadn't been done. And so this study was published in February and just recently started making the rounds. Uh, and so I figured I, I dig into it a little bit more for the podcast. Um, so the subjects in this study were 24 female D2 soccer players. Um, if you're not American, Division Two collegiate athletics are are quite competitive. Um, so these were were pretty good female soccer players. Uh, their VO2 maxes were on average around 54 mLs per kg per minute, which is is pretty good for a female athlete. Um, And so, yeah, these were were fairly well endurancely trained people. Uh, I don't think endurancely is a word, but we're going to roll with it. Uh, And what they did in this study is they had them do four rounds of four minute treadmill sprints uh, or like fast running quasi sprints at around 90 to 95 percent of their maximal heart rate. And they rested for three minutes between each four minute sprint. Um, and the measurements they took is they measured heart rate recovery following each sprint. Uh, they measured tidal volume. So basically how, how deep is your average breath, uh, and also VCO2, which is the amount of CO2 being exhal- exhaled. They measured all three of those things for the first minute of each three minute recovery period after each sprint. Uh, it was a crossover study. So they had all 24 subjects do both conditions and in one condition uh, after each sprint they'd have them hop off the treadmill they still have the mask on to to measure all of the the gas variables Um, and they would have them put their hands on their head and stand up straight and look and see how tidal volume and vco2 and heart rate recovery responded to that versus the other condition is they would have them just rest with their hands on their knees and their head down uh, and see how recovery went with that body posture. And all three variables responded more favorably to the the hands-on-the-knees posture. So um, the VCO2 was about 1.1 versus 1 liter per minute, Um, so like about a 10% difference, give or take. The fact that that is a small relative difference in terms of magnitude that was still statistically significant suggests that the – like within individual response was pretty homogeneous meaning that like the vast majority of the individuals did do better with putting their hands on their knees versus over their head uh slight or uh, basically the same response with tidal volume as well so a small difference 1.4 versus 1.3 liters per minute Uh, but that was a significant benefit uh, or a significant difference in favor of putting hands on the knees and then the biggest effect was in terms of heart rate recovery. So during the first minute after each sprint, heart rate dropped by 53 beats per minute to during the hands on the knees posture versus only 31 beats per minute uh, with the hands on the head posture, which was I mean, that, that's that's a pretty big difference if you're talking about, you know, the same minute of of recovery um and that had a super low p value associated with it i think less than 0. 0.0001 um so so very very large striking finding so that that suggests that there's that suggests that there's probably something going on with heart rate recovery on top of just kind of the breathing variables that you know just improving breathing and co2 expulsion slightly by like 10%. You wouldn't expect that. I I would think to have that huge of an increase on heart rate recovery. So that, that suggests that there might be some other like neurological variable in play. So, you know, maybe affecting the sympathetic and or parasympathetic nervous system to help with heart rate recovery. In addition to kind of the breathing variables they looked at, um, And a a plausible mechanism by which kind of the breathing stuff could have changed, the VCO2 and the tidal volume, is uh, basically like hands on your knees or just like a a spinally flexed posture in general helps with... So it's called the zone of apposition. And the easiest way to think of it is it's just like the vertical height of the diaphragm. And so when you breathe, you have a lot of accessory breathing muscles, but your diaphragm is is the main one that creates the negative pressure within your thoracic cavity to cause air to come in. Uh, And so when the diaphragm contracts, it depresses like it pulls down. And that's what creates that negative pressure for breathing to occur. Um, And so. A larger zone of apposition means that the like vertical height of the diaphragm is greater, so it can depress to a greater degree. And help you breathe a little bit deeper. Um, And so the, the researchers proposed that that might have been one of the things going on. So in studies, it's been found that if you are in a slight, a slight spinally flexed posture, especially with your ribs down, the zone of apposition is a little bit greater, which may help you breathe a little bit deeper versus with hands on your head and your ribs flared up. That zone of apposition is a little bit smaller. That may inhibit your ability to breathe quite as deeply. Um, So that might be what's going on with the VCO2 and the tidal volume. Uh, Like I said, I don't think that fully explains the relatively larger improvement in heart rate recovery with hands on the knees. Um, But overall, I think you would now be at least partially justified to, you know, send an email, shoot a text, shoot a Facebook message to particularly annoying coaches you had in like middle school, high school, grade school who were who were very, very particular about making people put their hands on their heads after you run sprints to help recover. You can say, sorry, coach, you were wrong. Uh, I was putting my hands on my knees like a real athlete uh, and you can shove it, basically. I think I think that's what we should take away from this.
0: Man, that's really frustrating because I mean, if if you were in any sport that involved sprints for conditioning, oh yeah. I mean, I I I can't even begin to imagine the number of times I was screamed at, hands on your head, you know, don't put your hands on your knees,
1: dude. I've I have been forced to run so many additional sprints for putting my hands on my knees when I was breathing hard after the first round of sprints.
0: It's it's such an unpleasant posture for recovery. Yeah. <laughs> That's terrible.
1: Yeah, it's it it is one of those things where I I don't want to I don't want to commit the naturalistic fallacy here and say that, like, oh, like whatever people naturally gravitate towards is therefore good and right. But, you know, it's one of those things where I would think that if you had been coaching a sport for a decade and you noticed like fucking all of my athletes want to do this. And for whatever reason, they think it helps them recover a little bit better maybe just like stop and consider for a half second that they're not all wrong, you know?
0: Well, I I honestly, I think that there's another fallacy at work here, which is uh, the one that just oozes out of high school and collegiate athletics, which is (laughs) the idea that if it is harder and acutely less pleasant, it's probably better. Right. So like the like no it it takes more toughness and mental resiliency to recover mm-hmm. in this you know hands on head position. Surely there's a reward or a benefit for that toughness
1: well so the the thing that coach has always said to us, at least in basketball, was like, "ha, ah, you can't let the other team know you're tired, yeah, it's like, coach, <laughs> you know we're playing fucking man defense." I'm, pl- I'm playing in the post. I'm breathing in my guy's ear. He hears how hard I'm breathing. When they're coming down on offense, they can see facial expressions. Like, the fact that we're not putting our hands on our knees while we're waiting for the offense to come down the floor, that's not going to fool anyone into thinking that we're not fucking tired. And also, basketball is like an archetypal, intermittent, high-exertion, interspersed-with-rest type You know, like you make a basket, you get, you get back down the court, you have a couple seconds to rest. And so like, maybe if we could recover during that time with our hands on our knees, we wouldn't get as tired as quickly in the first place. How about that coach? Uh, But yeah, I don't know that that always frustrated me.
0: I love the idea that your opponent would be like, you know, the fact that your face is purple, (laughs) and I can see (laughs) your chest just convulsing with each deep breath. At first, I thought you were tired, but then I noticed your hands on your head. Yeah. And now I see I was incorrect. <laughs> yeah. You are actually doing just fine. Uh, why um, is your face purple? I don't know. I may never know, but you're certainly not tired.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or, or just the fact that, like, you're sliding slower on rotations. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like, there there's 20 different tells that you're starting to get tired, but I'm going to ignore all of that because your head is up.
0: Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, and I get it. Like, if you're a wrestler, like... If your finger hurts, do not look at your finger and, and you know, give it a shake, like because your opponent will then literally for the next entire duration of that meet or that match, they are going to just grab that hand and yank on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's one thing to show injury. Like if you're running back and your ankle hurts, probably best not to limp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah, the the breathing thing, it's terrible. And this is the worst news I could possibly hear because it's just like all those years of being yelled at for it. You're like, <laughs> come on. Yeah.
1: Oh, well, that's how it goes.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, I got another one to share here. This is kind of a very, very brief update on something we've we've spoke about on the podcast before, I think a couple of times. But there was a new study that came out with time-restricted feeding. Uh, so time-restricted feeding, uh, just so everybody's on the same page. In the fitness industry, it's what we usually call t- uh, intermittent fasting. So just having a a short feeding window uh you know a fixed feeding window that's usually four or eight hours in duration um so you know you don't have any calories until like noon in most cases and then you finish all your food for the day by 8 p.m there's your eight hour feeding window and uh and you're good to go for the day so uh there was a new paper that came out by uh Stratton and colleagues and in this paper um In this study, they recruited 26 men. It was a four-week study, and throughout the study, they did uh, three full-body resistance training sessions per week. And throughout the study, they maintained a daily protein intake of about 1.8 grams per kilogram of body mass. And that's important because the the main thing that most people in the fitness industry want to know about time-restricted feeding is, is this a a suboptimal feeding schedule in terms of protein? Am, am I going to impair my ability to gain muscle or strength over the course of a training program because I squeezed all of my protein feedings into this relatively short window? And so, so making sure that there's enough protein in general over the course of the day is an important thing uh, to keep in mind with these studies. Uh, it's quite an important factor to control for. Now both of these diets uh imposed a 25% calorie deficit de- deficit so uh they're basically designed to induce some weight loss over the course of this resistance training program and uh the results were were uh, pretty much if you're really tuned into this literature they were pretty much in line with what we might have expected based on the way it was set up uh so both of these groups whether they were on a normal typical feeding window or a time restricted feeding window they had uh, statistically significant improvements in one rep max and reps to fatigue for the leg press and the bench press, uh, and they had improvements in vertical jump performance as well. So both groups were improving. There weren't weren't any you know huge differences between them, and similarly, both groups uh, had significant weight loss and fat loss, uh, while also increasing uh, cross-sectional area of the biceps and the vastus lateralis. So. Uh, pretty much across the board, the results for both of these diet groups were pretty similar. Now, obviously, a big caveat is we're talking about a four-week study, and so you you could theoretically say, "Well, what if they become more divergent over time, and, and we start to see you know bigger differences?" I mean, four weeks for all these effects to happen—you know, twenty-six total subjects looking for an interaction effect in our statistical tests—it'd have to be a pretty Pretty huge difference to see a statistically significant interaction over four weeks worth of adaptations. So, so there, there are some fair caveats in place, but the reason that I'm, uh, the reason that I'm not like super skeptical of like wait, you know this isn't set up is because this is pretty much falls in line with a few previous studies that we've seen on the topic. So, uh, in, in the past on this show, we've talked about some studies by Grant Tinsley and some of his colleagues. And if you look at the trajectory of the studies they've run on time-restricted feeding in people doing resistance training, uh, a couple of things you find... There was one study that looked a little bit less favorable for time-restricted feeding in terms of putting on lean mass over the course of a training program. Uh, and in that study, they used a four-hour feeding window and uh, kind of as a natural consequence of that, I would say, the the group in the time-restricted feeding uh, protocol they tended to kind of under eat protein based on what we would typically consider an ideal protein intake. So in that study, they were having like a gram per kilogram per day of protein, which is a little bit above the RDA. But um, you know, most of the research is kind of triangulating at a range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. If, If you want to make sure that you're not leaving any gains on the table, and your resistance training—that—that's probably the range you want to shoot for in terms of your daily protein intake. So what's what's fascinating is when you look at some of the other studies by you know Tinsley and some of his colleagues, and Tinsley was actually a co-author on this one as well. When they do an eight-hour feeding window, and when they make sure that the time-restricted feeding group is having at least a good 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilogram per day of total protein. The time-restricted feeding group seems to do equally well when it comes to uh, improvements in strength performance, muscular endurance, lean mass accretion, muscle cross-sectional area. Pretty much across the board, these diets end up performing in a pretty equivalent manner. So what's really fascinating is this area of looking at different protein distributions um there have been a few studies in the past month or two that have shed a little bit more light on it and I'm continuing to kind of gravitate toward a pretty simple uh set of guidelines regarding you know how do I maximize the protein in my diet while minimizing how much of a pain in the ass it is <laughs> you know cuz I remember I got into bodybuilding or like became interested in sports nutrition many years ago and at that time It it, choosing bodybuilding was like, do you want to be a bodybuilder or participate in society? Because it was like, (laughs) dude, you had to have seven protein meals per day. It had to be chicken, which means God forbid you ever get out of arm's reach from a microwave and a refrigerator. Like, Mm -hmm. otherwise you're probably going to get food poisoning and die. So like that was a, a very inconvenient meal schedule. But like everybody was doing it. You hear of people having more than seven meals a day. Because they're like, I got to keep those amino acids flowing, baby. You know, I,
1: I mean, we've both talked about this. Uh, didn't both of us keep a keep a protein shake like beside the toilet in case we needed to get up and use? No, the that, that was you. That was that was just <laughs> me. OK, I, I was trying to feel less weird. So, I mean, I've heard of a lot of people who would who would actually set an alarm. Yeah. To, to yeah. wake up, you know, at 3 a.m. to drink their protein shake. I didn't go that far. Uh, but I did, I did keep a a protein shake in the bathroom in case I did wake up in the middle of the night, you know, it can't hurt. Uh, and then if I didn't wake up in the middle of the night, I just chug it first thing in the morning.
0: Yeah. I did do something that was, I think similarly, irrational, I would say. (laughs) So one time I was, this is actually just at the absolute apex of my dreamer bulk. Mm -hmm. I was like, listen, I need some chicken in me at all times. And so I was uh, an undergraduate college student. So I was walking around class to class all day. And uh, so I would pack a Ziploc gallon bag full of the little like the little chicken breast tenderloins, yeah. Like the yeah. very small, like they look like chicken strips, yeah. But you know they were they were skinless, uh. You know, just made them in the oven, baked them or whatever, or grilled them, whatever the case may be, and just brought a giant bag of them. And I remember one time one of my classmates was like, "Why do you eat those like giant wafer cookies all class?" <laughs> And I, I was like, oh, no, it's way, it, definitely not as weird as that. I'm just eating like several pounds of chicken as we learn about sociology. <laughs> and they're like, OK, that's fine. Um, for some reason, it seemed more normal to me. They're like, no, no, it's, it's chicken breast. Yeah, it's, yeah. We're fine. Uh, and another thing I did during that dreamer bulk was aside from my giant bag of chicken, I would bring my sweet potatoes and very lean ground beef mm-hmm. uh, to my to my anatomy class. Well, my anatomy class was a cadaver-based anatomy class. And so, like, honestly, I couldn't eat sweet potatoes for, like, three years. Because when I tasted a sweet potato, I immediately smelled formaldehyde. Oh, man. And, and, like, I wasn't, like, in the cadaver lab eating it, but... I mean, if you've ever been near like an anatomy uh, hallway where there's a cadaver lab, the entire hallway smells like formaldehyde.
1: It's a very distinctive smell and it penetrates everything.
0: Yeah, there's no hiding from it. So, um, (laughs) yeah. So anyway, I've, I've been there of doing just really not fun things to try to like keep protein around at all times. But the more that we look at these studies, it, it does seem that protein distribution and timing appear to be a little bit more important when your total protein intake take for the day is a little bit lower than that optimal range. Uh, so there was a study just this past month where um, having low protein at breakfast was, uh, was less favorable, a little bit less favorable in, in terms of strength and body composition outcomes compared to having three meals a day where your protein was pretty evenly split. So, so
1: low protein at breakfast and a lot at dinner.
0: Yeah, so they, yeah. they made up for it at dinner. And actually the, the group with the low protein breakfast ate more total protein throughout the day than, than the, the group that had more even protein distribution. So, you know, the question is, well, can you just skimp at breakfast and make up for it at dinner, basically with that design. And that strategy was not quite as effective as an even protein distribution, but something to keep in mind is it was only three uh meals per day. So so that low protein group, their breakfast was like seven or eight grams of protein. So <laughs> they, they were not getting protein yep. until yep. lunch. And they were only having two opportunities to get protein in and the total intakes were about 1.3 1.4 grams per kilogram per day so not not insanely low but still a little bit lower than that that optimal range in that 1.6 to 2.2 mm-hmm. grams per kilogram range so when you look at the the evidence that that is becoming available in recent months and looking at some of this time restricted feeding literature as well It seems that the most advisable, but also most practical guidelines you could give in terms of protein intake and distribution is get yourself into that ideal range, uh, that 1.6 to 2.2. I would say I'm inclined to lean toward the higher end than the lower just because uh, if you go a little bit high with it, no harm done. If you go a little bit too low with it, you might be leaving a little bit of gains on the table, theoretically. Mm -hmm. So. Um, I would shoot toward the middle or maybe even the higher end of that range as, and within that, I mean, even these eight hour feeding windows seem to get the job done, at least in the short term. Um, but an eight hour feeding window, in my opinion, gives you ample opportunity to have three separate protein feedings with a decent amount of protein in each. You know, if, if you're having a, a decent serving of protein at noon and at four and at eight, congrats, you know. Call it time restricted feeding. You're in that eight hour window, but uh, but you still got three really solid servings of protein at three different times throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And I would say, if you're getting enough total protein and you're having three, four, maybe five servings of protein per day, I think that's the I think that's the middle ground or the sweet spot where we seem to be covering the bases that are required mm-hmm. uh, to to support those gains and strength and hypertrophy. But we're also not eating ammonia chicken in a, or ammonia beef in the anatomy lab, right? It gives us a little bit of flexibility that we don't have to do the 1994 bodybuilder strategy of just carrying around Tupperware everywhere you go your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And that's all I got to say about that.
1: All right. I have, uh, I have one more research roundup study. Um, so this is a study from Vic Mowen and colleagues title is, Adaptations to strength training differ between endurance-trained and untrained women, uh, and this was uh, th- this was a pretty straightforward concurrent training study with one interesting wrinkle that makes it slightly more slightly more applicable for a particular population who who at least have asked me if this question a fair amount. So. Um, a fair amount of people who come from an endurance background so you know maybe you're a runner maybe you're a cycler whatever um you know you want to get into the gym start lifting you want to get big you want to put some muscle on um but you don't know you you don't know how your endurance training is going to interact with that um and my advice to those people up to this point has always been basically the same advice I would give to anyone else who wanted to give concurrent training a shot. So combining resistance training and endurance training. Um, and, and when you look at that literature overall, what you tend to see is that the interference effect, so the negative effects of endurance training on resistance training outcomes are larger for like power slash velocity type outcomes. So, you know, sprint speed, vertical jump, et cetera. Uh, it tends to be the largest for outcomes like that and then slightly smaller for hypertrophy and strength, but still, you know, still notable and that there's a, a dose dependence to it. So, uh, you know, if you hop on the treadmill at a low intensity for 20 minutes, three times per week, that's, you know, that's not going to cause any notable interference effect. Whereas if you're getting out there and doing, you know, four hours of road work, uh, at a, at a reasonably challenging intensity and you're not particularly accustomed to cardio, like that's going to have a pretty large interference effect, uh, when it comes to lower body hypertrophy and strength gains. And so that's what most of the research is focused on. And so what I've always told those people is like, look, you can, you know, you can keep doing your endurance training. If you add resistance training on top of it, um, you know, you will get bigger, you will get stronger, but, but, you will probably need to cut back on endurance training considerably if you want to maximize muscle growth and strength gains. Um, So this study kind of threw an interesting wrinkle at it because the way most concurrent training studies are set up is they take people who are untrained in both regards. Uh, They're not endurance athletes. They're not strength athletes. They're untrained in both disciplines. And they have them do resistance training or a combination of resistance and endurance training. And they look to see how outcomes differ. Uh, In this particular study, what they did is they took pretty well-trained female endurance athletes and put them on a resistance training program while telling them to continue their normal endurance training And they also recruited another group of untrained people uh, who didn't have experience with either resistance or endurance training and just had them do resistance training. So it's two groups of people. The only change for both groups was adding resistance training into the mix, except the other group was doing five hours of cardio per week before the study and kept doing five hours of cardio per week during the study. Um, So, you know, basically people who who were endurance athletes and the only thing they added was some resistance training into the mix. The training program itself was kind of, I'd call it moderate volume, wasn't super low volume. Uh, They trained twice per week. They did four lower body exercises per session. Uh, Only two of them kind of targeted the quads and like quad based outcomes were what they were mostly interested in. Um, So they did half squats and unilateral leg press twice per week for three sets of four to 10 reps per failure four to 10 reps per set to failure so they were doing about 12 sets of quad work per week Um, and in terms of outcomes both of the groups had similar increases in unilateral leg press strength they had similar increases in maximal isometric torque uh, maximal isometric knee extension torque uh, and they didn't have a direct measure of hypertrophy, so you know taking an ultrasound and looking at say vastus lateralis thickness or cross sectional area. but they did look at uh dexa assessed lower body lean mass um and that was similar in both groups as well, so it seems like strength and hypertrophy outcomes were pretty similar in both groups uh However, the group that wasn't doing endurance training did have larger increases in knee extension torque at a high angular velocity, which is kind of like a a velocity power based outcome, uh, and that group also had a larger increase in maximal squat jump height. So, by and large, kind of the 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 like relative differences in interference effects were similar to what we've previously seen in the literature. So, there was a notable interference effect for power and velocity based stuff. Uh, but in this particular study, when it wasn't a matter of adding endurance training to someone's training, but it was a matter of taking people who are already doing endurance exercise and adding resistance training into the mix, it didn't seem like they experienced any notable interference effect when it came to strength and possibly hypertrophy outcomes. Like I said, leg, leg lean mass isn't the best measure for that, but at least based on the data we have, it seems like strength and hypertrophy were pretty similar in in both of these groups. Um, And so I I think that gives me a little bit more confidence if you come from an endurance training background and you're like, hey, you know, I want to get into lifting. Uh, Is this going like will continuing to do endurance training harm my gains? I would say as long as you're not kind of like a really, really elite endurance athlete doing a ton of endurance training, you'll probably be fine, at least for kind of like the short to moderate term. I do think if they would have used really high volume resistance training in this study, there would have been more negative effects for the group doing uh, like still doing endurance training. Um, and I think that probably, you know, you you put some months or years between you and the start of your resistance training. I think that more of an interference effect would show up over time. So, you know, if you're doing five hours of relatively intense cardio per week, I think you're probably not going to build like IFBB pro bodybuilder legs, Um, but at least for like a short to moderate term, it seems like doing a pretty fair amount of endurance training, if you are already accustomed to that endurance training, doesn't actually seem to have that much of a negative effect on strength and hypertrophy outcomes. One thing I'll note, though, is this is only the third study that has used this kind of experimental setup. So adding resistance training to people who are already in pretty well trained for endurance stuff. Um, and it seems like there is probably still some degree of of a dose response relationship. So in this study, uh, like I said, the athletes were doing an average of about five hours of endurance training per week, which is, you know, a fair amount, but probably isn't the amount of endurance training that like a professional endurance athlete would be doing. Um, There was a previous study by Hunter all the way back in 1987 that took kind of like recreational endurance athletes who were doing uh, an average of one to three hours of cardio per week, but used this same basic setup, didn't find much of an interference effect in that study. But there was another study in 2012 by Ronestead and colleagues that uh, used like competitive cyclists who were doing about an average of 10 hours of endurance training per week and they found that adding resistance training into that group did produce less strength and less muscle growth than adding strength training to a group of untrained people who weren't also doing cardio um so i i think that like if you're someone who you're already doing cardio you want to get into lifting and you're like well do i need to cut back on cardio to 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 minimize the interference effect and still gain as much muscle and strength as I otherwise would. If you're doing, I would say, probably somewhere between like one and five hours of cardio per week, at least for the short to moderate term, you're probably fine. Once you get maybe a year or two of lifting under your belt to continue maximizing strength gains and muscle growth, you will probably eventually need to cut back on cardio. But at least for, for like I said, the short to moderate term, if you're doing less than, you know, like five hours or fewer of cardio per week, you're probably fine as long as that is a level of endurance training that you are already used to and habituated to. Uh, however, if you're doing... A shit ton of cardio per week, like if you 're doing ten hours of cardio per week, even if you are already habituated to it, that will probably still cause an interference effect for strength and hypertrophy if you add resistance training on top of it
0: and, and if you 're in that range where you 're doing you know just a couple hours a week, you could probably also strategically time that to even minimize the likelihood of even that small risk of interference wouldn't you say
1: yeah, yeah, so so as far as the research on that goes your best bet if you're doing cardio and resistance training in the same program is if you can separate them on multiple days that seems to be the way to go if you can't separate them on multiple days then being able to do them in separate workouts spaced out by at least 4 to 6 hours seems like the way to go and and i think that's kind of the schedule a lot of people gravitate towards so i mean most people who lift tend to like to lift in the afternoon i know i certainly do especially for heavy lower body training like I don't want to do fucking deadlifts if I just rolled out of bed 45 minutes ago. Um, so I, I think there is a general preference for resistance training in the afternoon, whereas a lot of and, and I would venture to say most people who do a lot of cardio tend to do that first thing in the morning or pretty early in the morning. Um, so that that is a perfectly fine way to set it up. If you're separating those sessions by at least four to six hours, that's probably pretty good. Um, if you are forced to do resistance training and cardio in the same session, um if you do the resistance training first, that that seems to have a smaller a smaller negative effect on strength and hypertrophy. And also it doesn't seem to negatively affect cardiovascular outcomes, uh or, or like cardiovascular training outcomes, so VO2 max, time trial times, etc. Um Whereas if you do the cardio first, you you don't actually seem to improve more with the cardio by doing it first in the session. But it does have a larger negative effect on strength and hypertrophy outcomes. Um, so, you know, best is to separate those sessions by as much time as possible, ideally on different days. But, you know, separated by four to six hours on the same day is is still pretty good. And the way you absolutely would not want to do it is doing your cardio and resistance training in the same session with the cardio coming first.
0: Definitely. All right. Um, I think that does it for the research roundup. We should probably move on to a brief Q&A segment. Let's do Do it. Do you want to uh, throw me my first question here?
1: Yeah. So Chris Ekman asks, Eric. Eric and Greg, here is an idea that has been with me since it was proposed by a professor during thermodynamics class in college. Have you ever heard of the naked diet? The concept here is to lose weight by increasing heat transfer instead of doing physical work. It consists of setting your thermostat to a cool temperature, say 60 degrees Fahrenheit for argument's sake, and then shedding all your clothes for an extended period of time. A quick Google search did not produce any results, Ever heard of this concept or seen any testing? It could be this is the kind of idea that only gets floated in engineering circles as it may closely resemble torture.
0: That is a good question. I have seen it brought up in a variety of different circles uh, on the Internet, not necessarily like being naked through the process, but the the concept of intentionally using cooling as a as a way to uh, influence body weight, specifically increase uh, thermogenesis in response to that cold exposure and then you know burn some calories in the process. Um, now, I actually was part of a project when I was in uh, graduate school where we did study cold exposure and we looked at uh, brown adipose tissue activity. And it's a really fascinating thing. So uh, when we're exposed to cold, are uh, are brown and you know theoretically beige adipose uh, adipose tissue cells. They increase their metabolic activity. Uh, so, so these brown and beige adipose cells, these adipocytes, they are a little bit different in terms of their uh, their morphology and their function compared to your typical white adipocyte, your your typical like white subcutaneous fat cell that you, that you would think of. So these brown and beige adipose tissue cells, they tend to be more thermogenic in nature. They tend to have different metabolic activity, uh, particularly during cold exposure, and they have a lot more mitochondria um, per unit area. And so what happens is if we expose someone to a cold stimulus, those brown and beige adipocytes will increase their metabolic activity and burn calories. And it, it is uh, kind of just like a purely thermogenic caloric burn. It's it's not like, oh, we're burning calories because we need ATP. This is uh, largely uncoupled respiration, which means we're burning through substrates, but, but not because we're trying to generate ATP in the process. And so it really is a heat generating mechanism. And so that that's one way that cold exposure can increase our energy expenditure acutely, uh, or our resting metabolic rate, again, in an acute setting. So we could have this kind of uncoupled thermogenesis going on. And then of course, another response to cold exposure is shivering. Um, shivering is just a bunch of muscle activity that you know, functionally is you know, it's we're not trying to get anywhere. We're just activating muscles because they are metabolically active. They generate heat in the process. It's just kind of a byproduct of metabolism. So, um, so cold exposure does acutely increase energy expenditure, and that has gotten a lot of people thinking, okay, maybe maybe there's something to this. Maybe we can keep the house colder and lose a bunch of body fat in the process. Now, when you look at these types of studies that are looking at cold exposure and, and, you know, trying to look at brown adipose tissue activity, for example, for a while there, I mean, for, for a long time, we kind of were under the assumption that adults didn't really have any brown adipose tissue to speak of. And if they did, it was just like such a small amount that you couldn't possibly be bothered to care about it. That has changed a little bit in the last ten or fifteen years because of some advancements in the methodology for identifying these little pockets of brown adipose tissue and beige adipose tissue. And by the way, beige is just kind of like an intermediate between white and brown, where it's you know it's it's not quite as thermogenic and its its mitochondrial density isn't quite as high as brown, but it's kind of that middle ground. Um, but anyway, methodological advancements have allowed us to actually identify some pretty you could argue physiologically meaningful clusters of brown adipose tissue. And the way this is normally done in the lab is with uh, a cold exposure in conjunction with uh, usually the infusion of something like fluorodeoxyglucose, which is just like a radio label, uh, like a radioactive analog of glucose. And so what they'll do is they'll they'll inject fluorodeoxyglucose or FDG, expose the person to cold, and then use pet ct imaging and basically look at where did all that labeled glucose go and for for adults if you keep them still you know if you if you let them move around all the time it's it's going to go to their muscles right because <laughs> their yeah. muscles are active but but what's cool is if if you do it well you'll see that the fdg accumulates around the the clavicular region and kind of along certain areas of the spine and this is where some of these brown adipocytes cluster in, in, in adult humans. And it, it's brilliant because in response to the cold, they increase their metabolic activity and they start you know, drawing more glucose into those adipocytes. So it, it's a really, really cool methodology. Here's the problem. Uh, the reason that you don't see me writing articles about, you know, turn up your, your air conditioner to lose the fat. In order to induce a meaningful... Increase in energy expenditure something that we're really going to care about in terms of long-term body weight and body comp regulation It's got to be pretty cold like it's I wouldn't say it's torture that that's a stretch as the question used that term, but it is unpleasant you, you do not want to live in a state in which you are always on the verge of shivering and that that pretty much is what a lot of these protocols require is you want to get as close to shivering without breaking through that, that threshold. And uh, it's, it's just not a pleasant <laughs> it's not a pleasant temperature to be hanging out in uh, for any long amount of time. And so the problem is in order to get things cool enough to have a large enough magnitude of effect that we'd really be excited about it. In order to induce that, it's got to be cold enough that it's going to be pretty unpleasant. So it, it's not a particularly sustainable strategy. Um, and it's, you know, environmentally wasteful as well to just like ramp. <laughs> but like it's it's yeah. like, you know, July in North Carolina. It's kind of you don't want to have your air so that like, you know, it's 50 degrees in your house. But um, then the, the, the other side of that is if you just do a little bit of cooling, Um, to a point where it's actually like pretty pleasant and not bothersome. Um, It's just not a big enough effect at those temperatures to really get that excited about.
1: Yeah, like you're you're, the other regulatory mechanisms in your body work pretty well. And so one of the things that happens if it gets like kind of chilly but not legit cold is you'll get a shunting of blood flow away from the skin. And like the way that you lose most of your heat is like blood flow like blood flows near your skin and then kind of like the the en- environmental temperature difference between your blood and therefore your skin and the air is great enough that you lose heat from capillary blood um, and that thus lowers your core temperature and like blood flow regulation is very fast and very effective um, and so if you go from a perfectly comfortable environment to like a a slightly cool environment. The the main thing that'll happen is just you sh- you shunned blood away from your skin, so you lose less heat. So you do wind up needing to get substantially cooler than that for it to have a pretty big effect.
0: Yeah, and you know, like I said, in, in order for it to get cool enough that we would actually really be excited about the results or, or the magnitude of thermogenesis, it's just a really unpleasant <laughs> temperature to have as your ambient temperature. Um, so so I. It, it's tricky because I, I'm kind of torn on concepts like this because this these are cool aspects of physiology and cool aspects of creative research methodology. And I'm torn between wanting to maintain the excitement of like, wow, this is a fascinating topic. Like it's an academically stimulating topic. And then the other side of me is like, but I just don't see any use for this, you know? So mm-hmm. from a practical perspective, I don't find it to be that, uh, I just don't think there's a lot of meat on that bone in terms of like pursuing it as a practical strategy for, uh, for regulating body weight. But as, as an interesting aspect of human physiology, I think it's absolutely fascinating. So I, I would never, uh, you know, tell people, ah, shut up, stop worrying about it. Cause I think it's really cool. Uh, but in terms of actually putting it into practice, I just don't think there's, I don't think there's a lot of potential there.
1: I'm going to hit you with a question right now. I don't know the answer to it, but I think it's, I think it's related enough to this that it's worth at least just wildly speculating about if neither of us know the answer to it. What about like getting in a pool? So obviously this isn't worth, like this isn't something most people could do, but let's just assume, uh, you work from home, and you have a pool that, you know, you, you can keep, like, a cool but not cold, but, like, a temperature that that would actually be fairly comfortable to be in. One of the things with the water is it's, it's a far better conductor of heat than air is. Yeah, it's,
0: like, 25 times more rapid with, with conducting. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, way, way better. So, dude, like, I mean, like, 50-degree air is like a little chilly and you might want to put a jacket on 50 degree water is fucking cold and you hang out for like an hour and you get hypothermia and die right um so like that's the kind of difference we're talking about and so an idea i've put forth or not put forth but i've heard put forth that's kind of a riff on this is that like okay maybe hanging out in like 60 degree ambient air temperature isn't going to do anything for you but maybe like you know, again, cool, but not super cold, like 75, 80 degree water. If if you could just hang out in that all day, you would lose enough heat that it would be physiologically relevant. And and that actually kind of resonates with me, because like I remember being a kid and going to the pool and you're at the pool for like two or three hours and you get out and you're just fucking dead like yeah. like that wears you out similar to you know a very intense session of sledding in the winter like it, it feels like that much energy has been sapped out of you i haven't looked at the research in this area but at least in terms of like how, like heat transfer in water versus air it would seem to make a, a little bit of sense
0: yeah so th- that is a common method of actually inducing cooling with these mm-hmm. protocols is they don't just put you in a cold room what they do is in, in many cases they will put uh, pads over your like femoral arteries, uh, you know, in the armpit area. They'll they'll go to some key areas where there's a lot of blood moving, mm-hmm. and and they will use pads that can that just constantly infuse cold water. Mm-hmm. And so there's cold water running across these pads, running across these major conduit arteries, and doing a lot of heat transfer. So they're utilizing that that same concept uh, yeah. of applying these cold water pads. Um, but the the problem is you still have to get it's you know the 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 mechanism of cooling is kind of secondary. It's really just are you putting your core temperature in a spot where you are no longer in a comfortable thermo neutral environment mm-hmm. like do you have to actually activate some of these uh some of these processes that defend a thermo neutral body weight against a cold challenge mm-hmm. and so m- my my belief would be based on the evidence I've seen that the, you know, being in a pool of water would get you there quicker uh, for sure. Like y- you would almost instantly have to start activating some of these mechanisms to generate some body heat mm-hmm. um, or it could allow you to instead of being a, in a, a room at you know 60 degrees, you can be in water at a much higher temperature. But ultimately, it, it really just comes to, down to how effectively are you pushing the body to actually do thermogenesis. You know, it, it's how how much are you activating those uh, thermogenic mechanisms relative to a a normal thermo, thermoneutral temperature. So, it would be a little bit different in terms of how cold the water would have to be and how long the exposure would have to occur to get there. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I still don't see that as being a um, a feasible strategy, practically speaking, because you would still have to be in water cold enough that you're gonna be uncomfortable. It, it, it would it would be a, a pool of water that if you were there long enough, you would feel quite quite chilly.
1: I gotcha. Yeah, fair yeah. enough.
0: All right. Um, moving on to a question. This is by drown a fishy. Yes, I don't think that's how drowning works. I think fish are pretty pretty resilient in that regard. But anyway, one would assume, um, do you buy the idea that certain ethnicities have a genetic tendency to store fat in different places? Or do you believe that most of the supposed differences are diet based?
1: Yeah. So, so that's a good question and I don't have a good answer to it. So I'm going to answer a similar related question. Um, so I, am not sure how much is due to genetic differences versus diet differences. But there are there are absolutely uh, like racial and ethnic differences in fat storage and fat storage patterns. Um, And it goes beyond that as well. There's differences between the sexes. There's differences between different age groups. And this actually becomes it becomes important in body comp research. And it would also be pretty important for you, dear listener, if you wanted to go get your body comp assessed. Um, So in in practice, you want a body composition uh, formula or you know, means of assessment to be validated on as granular of a population as possible. So you know ideally your your people of a similar age, similar well same sex, similar race, uh, and similar training history because you also see differences in fat storage patterns and also just global body densities between athletes and non-athletes. Um, and there are there are equations out there that are supposed to be kind of like generalized that work kind of okay for everyone, but they work slightly less well for each kind of particular subset of people. Um, and so like, for example, if you go and get a DEXA scan, like a lot of this research has already been done for, for DEXA because that's what's used probably the most frequently, at least in a, a research and medical setting. Um, and so like if you go and get a DEXA, they're going to, they're hopefully going to ask for your age. So it'll account for that. Um, and they should ask for your race. Um, if it's obvious, just looking at you, the technician might just put it in, but they should ask for it. And when you get the printout, you should look and see if there's like a line for race or ethnicity and make sure that that's correct for you, um, to make sure that the scan results are right. Um, but if you go and get a DEXA, most of that should already be accounted for. It's, um, (laughs) it can become more problematic, uh, if you go and get body composition, Done with like a caliper method. So there are there are race and sex and age specific um, equations for converting skin fold measurements into body composition estimates. And a lot of the more common ones that might just come with a set of calipers are are like equations that were prime that were primarily validated on white middle-aged males and females. So if that's not you, it may be worth doing some googling to specifically find a skinfold formula that would apply to you. And and like I said, most of the time so so there are differences that exist, generally they're not huge, but they can become large enough that you wind up with with very very wrong results. So uh <laughs> one example of this that I think that I think can help illustrate how poorly it can go. Uh, that I think we've talked about on the podcast before is there was a study published in 2018, I believe, um, that was that was looking at the body composition and skeletal muscle mass of the strongest raw power lifter in the world, who, who is pretty obviously Ray Williams. Like everything in the study indicates that it's Ray Williams um, and they used. They used an equation based on subcutaneous fat thicknesses assessed via ultrasound, which operates on principles very, very similar to to uh, skin folds like using calipers. Um, And they used a pair of equations that (laughs) that had been validated on like mostly sedentary Japanese adults. And uh, Ray Williams is neither sedentary nor Japanese and, you know. I'm not trying to neg Ray Williams by by any sense of the imagination, but the study said he was 24 percent body fat and he's not (laughs) like that's uh, that's not particularly close to correct. And so if you're dealing with a situation like that, where uh, an equation has been validated on a population that is very, very different in multiple respects from from you trying to get your body composition assessed, Uh, it can wind up with substantially wrong results. So um, all all of which is to say like the idea put forth in this question that different racial and ethnic groups have different fat storage patterns. um, That is definitely true. It affects how we assess body composition. If you're getting a DEXA scan, which is I think how most people get their body comp assessed these days, You should probably be good. Most of that work has been done and a competent technician will be able to account for that. Um, But if you're getting body composition assessed via like a caliper method and you are non-white, it might be worth running a quick Google search just to make sure that the equation being used to estimate your body composition from different skin fold thicknesses is appropriate for you. Um, And if you have further questions about this general topic, uh, you should hit up mine and Eric's a dear friend, Malia Blue. This is what her doctoral dissertation was on, and she would be a perfect person to ask more granular questions.
0: I don't know if she actually exists in the public sphere, though. <laughs> I don't know if there's a way to contact her. I
1: mean, she has a Twitter account, and her, yeah, yeah, and her yeah. email address is on the UNC website.
0: Yeah. One thing, so back in grad school, we had this textbook that kind of got passed around the lab, and this textbook was like it was gold. It was everything you'd ever want to know about body composition, uh, measurement, and techniques and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I remember that very specifically there was one page, this like magic page that was like permanently earmarked. That um, w- kind of looked over a bunch of different equations, and what it did was, I-, I believe, in in many cases from population to population, one of the biggest differences. Regarding these equations for estimation is what is the assumed density of fat-free mass? Yeah. Um, and so it was a single page where it was like age-specific, uh, sex-specific, different race and ethnicity groups, uh, a few different uh, clinical conditions that that alter the density of fat-free mass, mm-hmm. um, training status. It was just this enormous list, and I wish I still had access to that book because it's it. I'm probably going to have to like buy it one of these days. Cause every time I have a body comp question, uh, when I'm like reviewing a study, I'm like, I know what page it's on in that book and I can't <laughs> remember the answer. But, uh, one of these days I'm going to dig that, dig up the title and authors of that book. When I do, I'll, uh, I'll like post about it. Cause I know people ask for textbook recommendations a lot. If you ever have a question about body comp, uh, th- this book is gold, but yeah, definitely th- those equations are, are very population specific in, in many cases.
1: All right. Next question for you, Eric from Doug. Hi, during a cutting phase, should nutrition be altered to match with a deload? For example, given the reduced stimulus, would there potentially be a benefit to upping calories toward maintenance during a deload to maintain muscle mass before resuming a deficit?
0: This is a very common question. I Actually, I see this a lot, especially working with clients. You know, we're approaching our first deload, uh, you know, working with a particular client and they'll say, cool, what do we do with nutrition? You know, um, because obviously it's it's quite a change in terms of the training side of the equation. And I've seen uh, two different uh, viewpoints or schools of thought when it comes to nutrition on deloads. Um, So some people worry about muscle loss during a deload uh, and they're they're thinking, okay, there's less of a training stimulus like was mentioned in the question. Do we need to increase calories or maybe specifically increase protein intake to preserve muscle and fight off muscle loss during uh, during this deload? a very different school of thought is people who are worried about fat gain during their deload um, and so the idea is we just reduced the amount of calories that were burning in the gym and depending on how uh, high volume and rigorous that program is, it could be a meaningful amount of calories, theoretically. And, and the idea is, if we're not spending all that energy in the gym, should we be reducing our caloric intake uh, to kind of match that reduction in weekly energy expenditure? Um, now, if you were to go one of those two routes, I wouldn't I don't think there's any harm to be done there, but I do think that there's some value in simplicity when it comes to nutrition and a deload. My general approach is to keep nutrition essentially the same on a deload. There might be some individualized cases where I will, you know, mess around with the, the caloric intake, particularly if I've got someone who is very, very, very focused on fat loss, and it will put their mind at ease, or if they're if they're very, very lean. And we've got, you know, a photo shoot or a competition coming up and we don't want to lose any ground that we've had to work so hard to, to make up. And we're at that level of leanness that, you know, even the slightest fluctuations are visibly noticeable. There there might be some rare cases where I might reduce calories a little bit on a deload and just keep, keep protein the same and just kind of reduce typically carbohydrate uh, during a deload. But I generally don't mess with it much because... I view deloads from like a very big picture view, which is during a deload, we want to minimize stressors. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes the training stressors of high volume, high intensity, but it also includes psychological stressors. So I actually have my clients document their training differently on a deload. I don't have them putting in every single you know load repetition set RPE or, or reps in reserve Um, You know, I I don't have them document as strictly because I want it to be chill. I want them to go into the gym a few times, hit some very basic uh, guidelines in terms of what their workout looks like. But it's really just about recovering, relaxing and getting ready for the next block of training that we're pivoting to. So I don't like to throw in a lot of stressful fluctuations with the diet that are going to cause them to overhaul their grocery shopping and how they're planning their meals out I don't like the stress that it brings in and I don't like the way it causes us to default to a really high level of focus on very small fluctuations in day-to-day calories. You know, it's I, I like to view weight loss or weight gain from the uh, you know, several steps back, looking at the big picture over the next month. Are we taking in more or fewer calories than we're expending, right? So mm-hmm. taking that big picture approach. I don't like to get hyper focused on the day-to-day, meal-to-meal, hour-to-hour aspects of energy balance. So I, I'm not really stoked about messing with it too much. And I will also note, you know, the, the original question asked a little bit about preserving muscle. I really don't think that that's a critical factor, like substantial muscle loss over the course of a planned load really should not be Uh, in in my opinion, something that we're super concerned about. If we're getting into the gym a couple of times and just doing some easy stuff, we really shouldn't have any issue whatsoever maintaining Mm -hmm. strength and muscle mass. And even if it were an important consideration, I'm a little bit skeptical that, you know, if we completely remove the training stimulus and just throw an extra 15 grams of protein in. I don't really think we're going to make a dent in it anyway. And that's something that you've brought up on the show previously, which is like uh, this idea of, hey, I can't train for three weeks. Should I just eat a ton of protein? And it's like, realistically, like the stimulus is driving 95% of the ship here.
1: Yeah. If you do like one set of push-ups and body weight squats per day, that's going to have a bigger impact on muscle retention than eating another 30 grams of protein for sure.
0: Yeah. So so when it comes to the the weight loss thing, I, I'm not really stoked about micromanaging the macros and, and, and doing that and reducing calories during a deload. And then the other side of the coin, I just don't see it as being a strategy that's worth the time and effort. And I frankly don't think it would be particularly efficacious. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we are we're pretty deep into the episode here. Um, would you be open to moving on to the on the rise segment? Or is uh, there another question you want to get in?
1: Yeah, let's do one more Q&A.
0: Okay, just the next one on the list?
1: Yeah, this should be a very quick one.
0: Okay, let's see. Okay, this one's from Luke. Um, <laughs> very simple, straightforward. What are the best hangover uh, cures or prevention tips?
1: Yeah, so I don't have a good a good hangover cure, um, <laughs> except like get drunk again, but that's, that's probably not particularly actionable in most contexts where you're trying to cure a hangover. Um, however, I do actually have a, a good hangover prevention tip and that is, um, well, so a, a couple things. Uh, one is it probably helps to be well hydrated part of a hangover probably has to do with the fact that alcohol dehydrates you and you just generally feel like shit when you're dehydrated. So hydrate well beforehand and then I think one of the things that helps me the most is um just like after I drink a fair amount right before I go to bed, I'll chug like a gallon of water and I'll generally have to wake up to pee once in the middle of the night, but I don't feel like I don't feel like I'm a sponge that has been like wrung dry and left in the sun when I wake up the next day. Uh, So hydration seems to help. Another thing I've seen proposed is that like ethanol metabolism uh, depletes certain B vitamins. So if you take like a reasonably large dose of B vitamins the night after drinking, that might help. I've tried that. It didn't do anything noticeable for me. Uh, Your mileage may vary, but that's another idea just throwing out there. But I think probably the biggest and most important thing, either tied with hydration or possibly slightly more important than hydration, is just what you get drunk on in the first place. So um, there is something in alcoholic beverages called or there are things in alcoholic beverages called congeners. And congeners are essentially just um, just outputs of the fermentation process, other than the ethanol that you want. So, um, you know, when when uh, glucose is is broken down by the yeast that produce. Alcohol um, that will produce ethanol, which is what you want. But other compounds, like other carbohydrate compounds and just other compounds in whatever is being fermented, uh, they can break down as well and produce things other than ethanol. And a lot of those things have flavor that people find either pleasant or non-objectionable, but they also seem to be related to... Uh, how likely you are to get a hangover and what the, and like how bad the intensity of that hangover will be. So, you know, we're talking about things like methanol, certain acetones, aldehydes, etc. cetera. Um, and so alcohols with high congener content are things like brandy, rum, and red wine. Um, so, If you if you get just like piss drunk on red wine or brandy, you're probably going to be in really bad shape the next day. Uh, I have been incredibly drunk on red wine once and I was ruined the next day. Like that's that's hands down one of the worst hangovers I've ever had. Um, I generally don't drink that many high congener or that much high congener alcohol in the in the first place so like i think i've only been like high congener drunk once and i can verify that was a gnarly hangover uh things with medium congener contents tend to be things like um whiskies and white wine Um, So, you know, not as low as a couple things we're going to talk about, but not as high as things like brandy rum and red wine. Uh, And I believe of those three, like brandy is kind of in a class of its own as like a particularly bad thing to get drunk on. And then uh, your best bets for like if you if you just want to go out and make bad choices and you're still going to pay for it the next day, but hopefully won't pay for it quite as bad. Um beer and clear alcohol specifically vodka seem to have the lowest congener content um with vodka even generally being like substantially lower than beer so uh yeah beer and vodka like i, I think there's a reason that those are kind of like stereotypically the like you know i'm in a frat and we get drunk all the time alcohols like you know, maybe social evolution is such that people with drinking problems have noticed that these are both very cheap and I don't feel as bad the next day. But yeah, beer beer, and vodka seem to be your best options for low congener content and a not quite as bad hangover relative to how much you drink.
0: Yeah, I think the problem is the beers I was drinking in college had <laughs> probably had a lot of heavy metal content. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like- yeah. <laughs> I assume this applies to beers that cost more than 55 cents a can.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so that's another thing worth mentioning as well. So um you know, if you're trying to to classify things kind of broadly, so like ah brandy seems to be very bad, rum and red wine also not great, whiskey, white wine a little better, beer and vodka better yet. Um, th- there is considerable variation within those classes. So uh, w- when you've talked about on the podcast before varying nitrate content in spinach and how it can vary like a thousand fold or yeah, something outrageous crazy. like yeah. that, uh, Congener content in alcohol that's been tested in, in research doesn't demonstrate quite that level of variability, but it's also pretty high. Um, so for for certain congeners, there can be like a 50 or 100 fold difference between, say, a red wine with like high butanol content and a red wine with lower butanol content, for example. Um, so, yeah, th- this is just painting in very broad strokes. Like, there very well might be a brandy out there that you can get super drunk on and you're fine, but in general, brandy is not a great option. Uh, there are almost certainly beers or vodkas out there that you get a very bad hangover from. But in general, beer and vodka seem to be pretty decent options. Um, but yeah, in general, beer and, and clear alcohol, specifically vodka, seem to be your best option. And if you get a really bad hangover from one, you know, try a different brand of beer and or vodka. Um, so, yeah, that, that's probably the, my my biggest hangover prevention tip in addition to the hydration one.
0: No, I will admit your response caught me by surprise a little bit. I know a lot of people view us as kind of a. I think we're the top Family Values podcast in America. Correct. And so when, yeah. you, when you said you had one tip for preventing hangovers, I assumed it was going to be you know you shouldn't be abusing <laughs> substances that alter your 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 mental state. So is there a different line? Because I, I, your your views on marijuana are very clear. Is is there a difference here with alcohol? Uh,
1: <laughs> so w- if you want to have a diversion and we can discuss like different uh, theological positions no, on alcohol, I, I don't. We could do that. I don't. I okay. was
0: just be- I was just being facetious. Let's, but uh,
1: but no, I mean, like, so actually, here's the number. Uh, that that was obviously <laughs> facetious, but. I mean, the number one hangover prevention tip is don't drink enough that you're going to get a hangover in the first place. And like, honestly, dude, well, I'm assuming Luke is a dude. Um, honestly, Luke, uh, that's kind of where I've settled on yeah. in my age. I've gone hard enough to have to get a gnarly hangover probably way fewer times than most people would assume, because I, I think most people know that I I like beer quite a bit, Um but yeah, I, I've gotten maybe like four or five really bad hangovers in my entire life, uh, mostly because like when I drink, I I don't want to get drunk enough that I don't feel like me anymore and that yeah. I'm like not quite as in control of what I'm saying and doing. So that, that generally limits my alcohol consumption a fair amount. And then like, bro, around the time I turned 25, um, just like – the amount that moderate drinking would affect me started ramping up considerably. So I, I remember, you know, being 21, 22, 23, going out, you know, not going super hard, but having like eh, maybe five or six beers, like keeping a pretty good buzz going for three or four hours, and then waking up the next day feeling great. Um, I, I would generally be a little bit more congested, but like, yeah, drink some water, blow my nose a few times. I feel fine the rest of the day. These days, like if I have... My limit, I think, is is three or four, depending on how much I've eaten beforehand. Um, And like the next day, I don't feel bad, like I don't have a hangover, but I just feel kind of like foggy enough. Yeah. That it's just like, eh, it's not worth it. Um, So, yeah, now like a crazy night of drinking for me is like three beers four if I'm feeling buck wild and I haven't had a hangover in probably like three or four years. And it's it's nice.
0: Yeah, something about the years, they catch up to you, but I'm the same way where even if I, you know, didn't have like several beers, if I just had like a few, um, yeah, you wake up and, you know, one of the nice things about what we do is that it's very intellectually stimulating, but you kind of have to perform. Like like when, when you're like doing really engaging work that requires some pretty heavy thinking, like... There'll be days where I'm like, you know, I had a few beers last night and I'm like not ready to work effectively right now. Like Mm -hmm. I need to do, you know, maybe if I have some kind of mundane, mindless task to do this week, like I need to do this and kind of wake up and and get a little bit more sharp before I start doing the heavy lifting this morning. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, age age will, will do that to you for sure.
1: I don't even want to think about just how badly fucked I would be if I drank as much as I used to and got a hangover based on like a level of alcohol consumption I once did. Like I I would be, I'd be ruined for probably 48 hours.
0: Yeah. It's it's just not worth it to interject with some degree of self-awareness. I do wonder, I mean, so we're talking about all of the, the really negative aspects of being very, very old. Neither of us are 30 yet. And so one (laughs) of the things I'm, first of all, if you're like listening and just rolling your eyes super hard that's fair. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. You know, but I do wonder, is this going to keep getting worse? Like, I don't know. We, I think we need someone to shoot us a message and just, just put our, put our minds at ease and say, no, there's like a singular change that occurs. Yeah. But, yeah. So but it, then you're good.
1: What I've noticed for myself is it was just like a switch that flipped at 25 and it hasn't gotten noticeably worse with each passing year. Yeah. But, but yeah, if you're listening to this and you know you drink somewhat heavily somewhat frequently and you're like 40 50 plus uh let us let us know what we're in for
0: and we know you're out there we, we get questions all the time about like lifting as you're getting into your 50s and 60s so we, we know you're out there so we're going to lean on you for advice with this one hell yeah but only give us the good advice that's going to make us feel good <laughs> don't don't be honest if it's bad news correct Okay. Uh, so Greg, we've, we've got a relatively new segment called on the rise where we talk about people who are making good fitness related content that mm-hmm. some of our listeners might not be aware of yet. And so who is on the rise this week?
1: Yeah. So, uh, this week it is Evan pycon I believe is how you pronounce his name. P E I K O N. Um, you can find his stuff, his uh, his Instagram username is Evan underscore PyCon, P-E-I-K-O-N, and he writes for a website called trainingthinktank.com. Uh, I was unaware of Evan, um, so I found out about him because people uh, submitted him as someone who I should check out. Uh reason I, I hadn't heard about him is he's primarily active in the world of CrossFit and CrossFit programming. Um, And a lot of his content relates to um, measuring blood flow variables to monitor stress and recovery, which is something that I know a bit about. Uh, You know considerably more about because you used NEARS for your dissertation research. Um, But I don't think is just generally common knowledge in like the, the evidence based fitness space. Um, so I checked it out, and and based on my limited understanding of how nears works, and I'm being a little bit too modest, like I, I know blood flow stuff reasonably well, um, and his uh, his content did seem to be quite solid, and it's talking about uh, measuring blood flow and different correlates of stress and recovery that it relates to um, in a way that's pretty accessible that will probably be new information to most people, like stuff most people probably wouldn't be aware of. Um, and it it seemed to be pretty high quality stuff. So um, yeah, if you're interested just in like blood flow physiology stuff, or if you're interested in CrossFit programming or or like concurrent training, you know, if you don't want to do CrossFit, but you want you want to do some endurance stuff in addition to strength training, uh, Evan is a person worth checking out. And so, uh, again, his Instagram handle is Evan underscore He writes for this, the website TrainingThinkTake.com. And you can find links to both of those things in the show notes. Um, so... One thing I'll note, if you want to submit a question to our general Q&A segment or if you want to submit uh, a a lesser known content creator who you really like to the on the rise segment, uh, you can do both of those things. I'm about to tell you the links for them. And again, you can find the links in the show notes. Uh, A lot of people submit Q&A questions. There aren't that many people who submit on the rise folks. Uh, So if there is someone who who you really, really like and you look at their social media and you're like, man, this person's putting out great content and they should have way more followers. uh, Do take a do take a second to fill out the form uh, to submit people for this segment. There aren't that many people getting recommended. So, you know, just take a second, show someone some love if you like their stuff.
0: And it will literally make or break their career. Absolutely. If you care about them, you need to get them on.
1: Right. (laughs) <laughs> so uh like i said the links will be in the show notes but the the place to submit q a questions is tiny.cc slash sbs and the place to submit a up-and-coming creator for the on the rise segment is tiny.cc slash creators i believe either creator or creators i think it's creators
0: cool okay all right um so to play us out, we got a couple uh, couple quick questions, uh, you know, Fireside Chat episodes, which I think you did a fine job hosting, by the way. Uh, those episodes, we would talk about some off-topic stuff, and we, we borrowed a couple of those Fireside Chat questions to play us out this week. The first one is by TJ Juxon. The question is, I need to know your thoughts on pancakes versus waffles and also on Cool Ranch Doritos versus nacho cheese. Which do you prefer and why? And then in parentheses, it says Greg will probably have more of an opinion here (laughs) than Eric, uh, which is actually not true. I have a pretty strong opinion about both, but why don't you start?
1: All right, so for the pancakes versus waffles question, I... I am personally more of a fan of pancakes, I would say. Um, so I I like the fluffiness and also I, uh, I I like to syrup my pancakes and or waffles fairly heavily. That's that's just how we grew up eating them. And I, I think that the I think there's like an optimal like bread to syrup ratio and and pancakes in my opinion absorb the perfect amount of syrup whereas waffles since they have the little like cups in them they actually have like too great of a syrup to like bread ratio um so i personally prefer pancakes
0: let me let me jump in there before we move on to doritos
1: (laughs) that's That's crazy your fucking face
0: I'm like I'm like really surprised by this. Like for me it's it's a landslide victory for waffles. Um I don't like the fluffiness. I like the the texture of waffles much much better and there is no optimal ratio of syrup to the, you know, starchy bread content because we could always go higher. Like I'm always interested in technologies that allow us <laughs> to push it higher. You know, so I think I think there's still room to grow there if we are innovative enough. But I love the waffle. You get that nice little pocket that you can just completely fill with syrup, um, and it's just lovely. But I, I will say, waffles. You, you said
1: you like the texture better as well, like definitely. The little crunch you get. Yeah, yeah. Here's a concept. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you bake a loaf of, like, beautiful, crusty sourdough bread, okay? And you want to maximize the syrup-to-bread content. Bread bowl, baby.
0: Oh, yeah. You just cut a
1: little hole out of the top, (laughs) hollow it out a little bit, fill the whole thing up with syrup. You get even more of a crunch because you have a thicker crust on that, and you have a virtually limitless syrup-to-bread ratio.
0: I like it. Or just, like syrup shots that you just put (laughs) little clumps of waffle in you know yeah uh if you feel like putting waffle in at all really but you know i will say waffles led me to a really uh devastating realization i'm pretty sure i was 28 years old when i found out that i had never actually had maple syrup oh yeah i think you were there when i when that that truth i think i was the one that told you Yeah, so in America, we have these syrup-like products that are just like high-fructose corn syrup and caramelized coloring.
1: It'll be like size 64 font, maple, size 6 font, lighter text parentheses, flavored, Yeah, size 64 font syrup. So if you just look at it, it says maple syrup, but it's like... Oh, asterisk baby! No actual maple
0: yeah, so i, I thought i I thought I was like a maple syrup connoisseur, and then I realized twenty eight years into my life, I had never <laughs> tried it, and I was just devastated um, okay, uh, cool ranch doritos versus nacho cheese
1: so both are good, so i I think there's a I think there's a Dorito tier list. And I would put both Cool Ranch Doritos and Nacho Cheese Doritos on the A tier. They're both very good. However, the only S tier Dorito flavor is Sweet and Spicy Chili. That is hands down the best Dorito flavor. Uh, I honestly wouldn't pick between Cool Ranch and Nacho Cheese. It it just depends on my mood. Sometimes I'm in a Nacho Cheese mood. Sometimes I'm, I'm in a Cool Ranch mood. They have different applications, but they're both great. And then everything down from there. Um, so I'm I'm actually gonna punt and not choose Cool Ranch or Nacho Cheese, but I will say Sweet and Spicy Chili is the best.
0: You know what they should do is come out with a Shrek Green Dorito. <laughs> that would be sick. Oh um, man. So my fi- I would I would go with Cool Ranch Doritos because I, I unlike you, I've got the the blessing and the curse of having a very sophisticated palate <laughs> when it comes to flavors. So. Cool Ranch just brings more flavors to the table, in my opinion. It's a more there's more depth to the flavor. Um, nacho cheese very good, but definitely a Cool Ranch guy. But I would say the best ever was actually, I believe it was only around in like the for a brief period of time. But there was a cross promotional Taco Bell Doritos, like where the 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 Doritos were normal size and shape, but they were flavored with like the Taco Bell mm-hmm. spices. And uh, the very secret flavor profiles happening at, at your local Taco <laughs> Bell, it was it was amazing. But but I'm with you. I don't think there's a very very clear cut winner between the two. Um, I'd give I'd give it to Cool Ranch, but Nacho is still very good.
1: All right. So I'm I'm going to read you into the next question. Um, and I will just say, when this question came in, Eric made me aware of it. And I don't know if I have ever seen him more flustered about a question that has come in through any avenue. Uh, so, uh, Xinhua, I believe, or quinoa, Ch- Chinwa says your only note is rhymes with quinoa. So it could be it could be Xinhua
0: or chenwa. I think. Yeah.
1: All right, stat geeks are or SPSS, or Excel. My prediction for Greg is that he's an Excel user. Parentheses, he tends to be pretty meh about these kind of topics. Close parentheses. Don't even know what the fuck that means. Uh, Eric is more of an SPSS guy, but has to resort to using Excel because he's cheap. Parentheses, SPSS costs money. Close parentheses. And, and this is what made Eric mad, because he's too lazy to learn coding.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was literally just flabbergasted. (laughs) I do worry. I have a small bit of concern that because you and I are very candid on the show and we're very self-deprecating that we are actually convincing people effectively that we are literally worthless, Uh, which is (laughs) which is not good for the brand. (laughs) But no, this one hurt my heart because um, a little known fact about me, first of all, I use a combination of R and SPS, or I'm sorry, R and SAS, depending on what I'm doing. Uh, I like the way that the SAS syntax works for linear mixed models. I, I just really like the syntax and the output structure. But I use R for most things. Uh, I do meta analyses in it and stuff like that. Uh, data simulations. So, uh, but but anyway, this one hurt because like, Man, I had a competition with a friend of mine in in graduate school where we were we would push each other to find the most interesting application of our coding. Like we were using it as an excuse to to get better at to get better and get more creative with our code writing with R. So like, for instance, I made a couple of birthday cards using R software. <laughs> so like the idea that I wouldn't learn how to do a damn T-test in R w- is, Was it
1: you or Jake that learned how to send text messages? I was going
0: to say, that was the end of the competition. I forfeited. I gave up. I lost because uh, my, my, my colleague in graduate school actually texted my phone from R. <laughs> and I was like, dude, we have crossed over to a a realm I'm no longer comfortable with, uh, like that, that was just like, okay, you win for sure. But, but no, I mean, there was even a class, um, where I had to learn, uh, data signaling processes. Uh, so like you take your raw data from an EMG output or, uh, some type of, uh, dynamometer, uh, data, whatever. And you, you, uh, filter the signal and, and turn it into actual usable, uh, you know, summary data or, or or actual data points, and we were learning it in a software called LabView, which I found to be horrifically just awful in terms of being user friendly and 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 clean and concise. And so, I did all my homework in that software because I'm a, I'm a good young man and I was doing what I was told to do. I said, "Here's the homework assignment," and I you know got my sticker and my grade, and it was good. But for every assignment for the class, I also did the assignments in R software uh, because I was like, you know that there's just like a way better way to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so almost to kind of prove a point and again, learn a bunch of eventually useless skills in R coding, I would do all my homework assignments twice and uh, I would be like, okay, so here's this like 90 minute construction in the original software. And here's like six lines of R code that does the same thing out to the ninth decimal point. But in any case, this this absolutely rocked me to my core. This question, <laughs> uh, Chinwa you are actually banned from from listening to the show uh, from this point forward. Um, hate to say it, but-,
1: but please message us your IP address so we can <laughs> so we can permanently ban you on all stronger by science related internet properties.
0: Yeah, I mean the the thing is, like Greg, you know anyone that knows me, this is. For for no reason in particular, this is the one, uh, the one thing that a troll could absolutely end my life with, <laughs> like a <laughs> troll could get under my skin to the point that I would, I would have to just immediately cease existing on the internet if, if they hit me with something like this.
1: No. Yeah. I mean, so before I knew you well, uh, So one of the things I do when I generally like someone and I'm like, ah I want to be friends with this person is I try to figure out like a handful of things they really like. Um, So it's like, okay like we're having a conversation. Things seem to be stalling. What's like a good vibes conversation topic I can bring up? And so like before I knew you, well, kind of like my shorthand. What does Eric like in my head uh, was four things. It was bourbon. It was R. Uh, it was French Bulldogs and Pugs, and it was Ohio State football. <laughs> that,
0: that, that's the only four. Yeah, yeah, that's it.
1: So uh yeah, but but in, in terms of like things you love and are passionate about, uh I would definitely I would definitely put are up there in the pantheon of things that matter most to you in your life.
0: I know. So this question just absolutely just rocked me to my core. So it's possible that, uh, Chinois is actually the greatest troll of all time. <laughs> and that, that's a possibility that we have to be very open to.
1: Yes. Uh, so he asked about me as well. Yeah. Um, I do in fact mostly do stuff in Excel, uh, two reasons for that. One is is Excel is free, uh, and two is because if I'm – like especially if it's something I've never done before, um, I like first looking up the math of how something actually functions and kind of like working through it, not necessarily by hand because I'm not going to take like a paper and pencil and like work through an ANOVA step by step but I want to see all of the equations and all of the variables and how they interact, because then that helps me just understand what I'm actually doing. Um, which then helps me understand, like if I get an output, does this output make sense given the data I put into it and given how these equations actually work? Um, so I, I tend to like the first time I do something, I tend to do it in Excel, writing all of the equations out myself. Um, just so I get a better understanding of the actual like statistical process. And then beyond that, I mostly use a free software called JASP that does a lot of what SPSS does, but it, it is also like a point-and-click thing. Um, in my defense, and Eric can, can verify this, I was planning on learning R. Uh, I, bought, I bought a couple books about it, made it like halfway through one of them, um, started playing around with it a little bit, and then when me and Eric started becoming buddies, I was like, I'm going to poach this guy away from academia and he really knows R, and I will never have to learn it. Um, so, so that's when I decided I wasn't going to learn it because it seemed like at that point it would be a waste of my time since Eric already had that skill set. Um, but yeah, I, I do actually do a lot in Excel, but it's not purely out of laziness.
0: Yeah. And I will say like you have developed quite a skill set with Excel. Like uh, one one of these days, I need to learn some of your spreadsheet <laughs> tricks because I I do a lot of my uh, programming in uh, either Excel or like the Google Doc equivalent, uh, mm-hmm. Google Sheets or whatever. So uh, yeah, Excel's a nice it's a nice software for sure. But when it comes to stats, I'm I'm sticking with R and SAS and Jinnah. Uh, It was a pleasure having you listen to the podcast, but you you are, in fact, banned. Um, Okay, so that does it for this uh, for this week's episode. Uh, As always, thank you for listening. Like I said, we're back on that every other week schedule until our summer break. So we will uh, see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So, before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.